Hello, Tent Talk listeners. This is Chris Marchand, and I wanted to make you aware of the release of Gentle Spacemakers, music from the Tent Talks podcast, and also to remind you of our Patreon page. Over the past couple of years, I've recorded a number of songs to go along with our episodes, and I finally collected them all to release as a soundtrack for the podcast. Each one of the tracks was inspired by a phrase or idea from one of our episodes. You can listen to the album on all the streaming platforms or head to chrismarchand.bandcamp.com to download the album and liner notes. Or we wanted to make you aware that we're giving away the album to all of our Patreon supporters. Do you like what we do? Well, now is a great time to become a fellow traveler as a Patreon supporter, where not only can you listen to the new album, but you'll also be able to enjoy every episode of Stephen's Mark and Book of Acts Bible Studies, as well as other bonus episodes. Head over to patreon.com slash tenttheology if you're interested, and we hope you enjoy today's episode. Welcome, fellow traveller, to the Tent Talks podcast, where we fight bad ideas with good ideas. Join Dr. Stephen Backhouse and friends as we pursue the renewing of our theological, social, and political imagination. My guest today is Sarah Phillips. Sarah is the author of the upcoming book, Orphaned Believers. She's also a columnist, and you can see her work in the New York Times and other publications. Sarah sees herself as providing resources for Christians who live in a state of cultural dissonance. She's particularly interested in what it means to be an evangelical in America today in the wake of nationalism, Trumpism, and all the other things that we are well familiar with and perhaps weary of. But Sarah is a breath of fresh air. She is wise and funny and kind, and I really enjoyed talking with her and about her life. She has worked in the music industry. She used to work for Asthmatic Kitty Records. She has been a journalist, a food and culture critic, and all sorts of other interesting things. I'm looking forward to seeing Sarah's book when it comes out in a few months' time. But until then, I hope you enjoyed this conversation. about I mean one of the questions I tend to ask people right from the start is you know how did you what kind of political imagination were you born into and 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 what changed you know where what was the some of the touchstones of the of the world that you were that you grew up in uh first of all yeah I'm so glad you asked I mean I was uh I was registered as a card-carrying Republican I started as uh as the kid of a Jewish father who converted to evangelicalism in the 70s after reading Hal Lindsey's Late Great Planet Earth. Oh, very good, yeah. Uh, so I was raised, uh, you know, as a as a Jewish Christian kid in a small Indiana town called Fort Wayne, Indiana. There were about 200,000 families, um, very few Jewish families, and zero Messianic Jewish families for whatever that whatever that would look like but really for us that meant uh going to an evangelical church and we would celebrate Hanukkah so there were some Jewish traditions and holidays kind of mixed in but it was really quite an evangelical childhood grew up in a non-denominational church by a strip mall in a sort of suburban setting uh when I turned 18, dad took me downtown to the Republican headquarters and I was registered as the card carrying Republican before I was able to really articulate what that meant. Uh, for my family, Republicanism was synonymous with, uh, with being opposed to abortion and there was no other option. So certainly wonderfully brilliant, clear example of a single issue voter um, for my mom and dad. So I, I very much grew up as a Christian kid uh, in the suburbs, um, living a kind of American life, Saturday we'd go to the mall and Sunday we'd go to church. And so my influences besides Bible study and Sunday school was just very much uh, pop music, uh, you know. Yeah, uh, who were you, who were, go on, who were who you listening to? What were you reading and listening to? Well, well in the, you know, in the eight, I, you know, I'm in my early forties, so in the eighties, it was all just pop radio, WMEE, you know, all of, you know, all of the pop music. But then uh, in the nineties, I, 
began to explore other music aesthetics and ideas, creative kid, got into poetry, and of course discovered REM when I was and discovered the um, magic of automatic for the people and my whole world changed. So I was able to kind of differentiate a little bit when I turned 15, 16 and began to kind of open myself up to a world of ideas and started to read, you know, good books and get into poetry. So that was Did a big you have turning. much of the, the kind of evangelical subculture music? That's and- what's sort of interesting about my story. You know, I didn't really grow up in evangelical culture, although I very much attended an evangelical church. And so our politics and sort of social positions were certainly uh, very evangelical in a traditional way. But in terms of my upbringing, I mean, watching TGIF on Friday nights, which is a sitcom series in the 80s here, I was really, really raised um, as a consumer and a suburban um, kid. Uh, in a in a pretty white area as and then I was also raised as an evangelical with this sort of Jewish flavor kind of on top so it's a really interesting interesting experience uh, in terms of like purity culture daddy daughter dances that really wasn't a part of my okay. experience so you dodged those bullets <laughs> yeah that's right <laughs> it's interesting I mean Michael Stipe so for me like growing up in a I did grow up in the evangelical bubble and I, and I have to say REM was was one of my main exit ramps in terms into a new world right so the fact that REM was always putting every every album would have at least one anti-republican song for example that's right that's right like green was so political yeah absolutely so that sort of seeped in that seeped in and then and then from from there I just went into the wonderful world of of, of all British all British bands and discovered Morrissey and The Cure and everything everything great. So, <laughs> oh you're an emo kid that's fun. Yeah that's right um but then I went to Taylor University about an hour south of where I grew up it's a small evangelical college in Indiana in a speck of a town with not even a stoplight met my husband he was one of the only other people on campus that was wearing like cure shirts and skateboarding. I mean, it sounds like a cliche, but it felt there wasn't a lot of counterculture as the work we would have used in the late nineties when I was an undergrad, but we kind of found each other in a group of really great friends and had a, a pretty awesome experience um, in undergrad because we found this church where there was a pastor from the Jesus movement. And so we ended up having a really wonderful college experience and a time after college. Um, what I didn't realize is that what I was being taught in this really great church in college wasn't that different than what my dad taught me growing up as a sort of evangelical uh, with a Republican sort of edge. <laughs> because honestly, for me, I realized that like hippies were certainly reading Late Great Planet Earth. Like that book was next to their bedside table along with the Bible, just like my dad, who was um, totally not into culture or counterculture in any way. So really it was the same kind of message and through line, um, but just kind of packaged differently. So that was kind of a big aha thing for me to to realize. I did notice, I spent a bit of time with a sort of, um, I've lived in the States for a while and I spent some time with the sort of Pentecostal world. And it was interesting to me how many Jesus ex hippies they'd all call themselves ex hippies, and now they're all Republicans. And that's right, yeah. yeah. And you realize, oh yeah, there seems to be some kind of through line between these cultures, and it is interesting how it's that self identity of someone who feels they're against, they're against everyone's against them, and they're against everyone. Really, it's a it's it's an easy defense persecution posture. minority complex. That's right, yeah. yeah. You know, I've I've met some folks that were Jesus people or ex-hippies that would consider themselves progressive now, some boomers, but really that that certainly does seem to hold true and is really interesting. So that's a little bit of what I explored in Orphaned Believers in the book, thinking a little about, about Larry Norman and CCM. I mean, in the, in the 90s and 2000s, I attended this music festival in Bushnell, Illinois called Cornerstone that was put on by Jesus People USA. Did you ever go to Cornerstone or do you know anything about that? Yeah, I knew about it. Yeah, for sure. Okay. I mean, a lot of, if you grow up Canadian evangelical, you basically are American. Like all your- Like in the fold. <laughs> yeah, all, all the books we read and the music we had was coming out of that. And I went to a Christian school. So we had textbooks written by American evangelicals and taught six day creationism and rapture in school and that kind of stuff. Yeah. yeah and all our music was from that world. And even Canadians kind of had to move to Nashville if they wanted to 
Canadian musicians, if they wanted to make it big, they had to move to the States anyway. So. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah. 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 Well, at Cornerstone realized that there was some quote unquote good Christian art and right. interesting music and found some really wonderful bands like Luxury or Starfire Flyer 59 or some other bands that were doing cool stuff on Tooth and Nail. So that was really eye-opening to me, but it also is interesting that Jesus People and Cornerstone, you know, those folks are the folks that started CCM with Larry Norman and, mm. and that kind of fed right into mega churches. So kind of unpacking those dynamics has been interesting for me too. So are you, I mean, you're a journalist, were you a music journalist or a culture? I saw you do a lot of work with food and restaurant. Yeah, that's right. Well, like, I, yep, that's right. I work in nonprofits now, but I, um, I worked with as a asthmatic kitty for several years, which is um, Sufjan Stevens label. Um, and have done some some music writing and all other all other sorts of fun writing, uh, coffee industry, some restaurant stuff. So yeah, the, the journalism background I have is a little a little broad, some parenting, nonprofit stuff. Um, but the decision to write about faith and culture was certainly a departure, um, not because of lack of interest, but because of a real fear that I held for a long time. We moved to Seattle 17 years ago after that really wonderful experience in that church with the hippie pastor in Indiana. When we landed, it quickly became clear that there was a hostility or a tension around folks that identified as Christians in Seattle. This was in 2006, 2008. Uh, I now realize after listening to the Mars Hill podcast that a lot of that really was centered around Mark Driscoll and Mars Hill sort of mission to kind of Christianize Seattle with having a lot of babies and <laughs> kind of turn into Seattle, Seattle Christian. So I get that now, but I didn't, when I landed, it was like, whoa, this feels, this feels intense. I need to kind of be quiet about my Sunday life and live my other life working at a small press downtown and, and kind of separate those things. So you were the only believer in the room quite often, that kind of idea. Right? Yeah. When I say orphaned believers, I'm, I, I'm now saying Christians looking around and wondering where Jesus is in the church in America. But another element of that for me is certainly uh, what it's like navigating certain spaces when you may be the only Christian in the room. I mean, what are the fruits of the Mars Hill, Driscoll, Seattle? What are the actual fruits of that, that culture in, in, in your city? Yeah. Are you using fruits sarcastically or literally? Well, literally. What are they? I mean, what that that concerted effort to bring the culture wars to a city. Yeah. What's the fruits of it? What's yeah. happened to that? Um, th there are many people that I am friends with or acquaintances with um, that, so after Mars Hill imploded in what, 2014, mm. uh, many churches around the city uh, began to welcome new families from that church. A lot of families passed through. Some folks stayed for a little while. Some folks left. I'd say that I go to a, a small Presbyterian church on Capitol Hill. There were probably 50 to 75 people that, that joined or attended for a while. So just sort of watching what has happened. Some new churches were planted that are thriving today from folks that came out of Mars Hill. Um, some people have left, have left the faith. Many, many folks have walked away or their faith looks quite different. So really seeing it sort of uh, spread and, and, and almost kind of like dilute or dissolve in certain ways has been interesting. But really there was a hostility or an animosity in alternative media or in the press in Seattle when Mars Hill was, was building and growing. There was a Sunday where there was a service in our football field on Easter, it was very big and showy. So there was a defensiveness. And now in Seattle, that certainly has has dissipated and I'd say that like the media has kind of like lost that beat that was a really good clickbait and that was really easy to write about and I'd say that in terms of in terms of fruit I mean yeah there are new congregations that are sort of quietly loving their neighbors and neighborhoods um but there's a lot of friends and people that continue to hurt and and struggle and couldn't listen to the podcast I mean the wounds are are raw and fresh yeah. And do, so, you know, do you know Stephanie Drury? Do you ever pay? Do you? Yeah, I, she's a, a good friend. And we oh, went really? to the same church for a long time. I mean, I, I see her all the time. Yeah. Oh, fun. Oh, very good. Yeah, I, I love listening to her her take on these things as well. I mean, I always seek out oh, her voice right. on this stuff. I mean, I'm a... Talk about a, a small world. <laughs> well, I don't know her at all. I mean, I'm, I, I discovered her through John Worcester. Do you know John Worcester? No, I don't think so. So the best show. So uh, he's a he's a musician. He's, he's a drummer with the Mountain Goats. 
but he's oh, also sure. very, okay. he's very funny, very funny comedian, and he always retweet he retweets Stephanie's stuff a lot. Okay. So I got interested in her because of him. <laughs> and her um her quick wittedness is is a rare gift. She's the yeah she's a quite quite a quite a sharp and funny and yeah she's got quite important criticism. Um, but that's why someone like Stephanie drive on Twitter. That's why I stay away. My mind is a little. that's true right I mean she gets shut down all the time but I mean a lot of the conversation there is about like there's harm that's being done to 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 people in this in these environments and it's it's having a ripple effect you know on basically a lot of it was kind of sexual and gender uh, politics and problems coming out of the Mars Hill type culture and really but I mean Mars Hill is a example of what's happened in cities across you know across America or across North America that podcast caught on because it certainly is is replicated and seen many other places so right and this is the this would be like the thing is we like to focus on one church as if it was a bad apple and I think a lot of people perhaps like you and certainly like me I go no this is this isn't like a a one-off you know good thing that went bad this is a bad thing that happens over and over and over again that's right. Yeah. That's right. Yes. So what yeah. is it? What is it, Sarah? <laughs> what is it well, about? I spend a lot of time thinking about and trying to figure out what's happening. Yeah. I mean, why do you're you're the you're the one writing a book about it. Why do you think it, it's happened? What how have we got to this stage where where generations of people are just they're not only re- rejecting it, they are hurt by it as well, like damaged by this this culture. Yeah, that's that's right. I mean, you know. With orphaned believers, with with the book I'm working on, I mean, you know, I grew up as one of millions of older Gen X or younger millennial kids. It just steeped in kind of cultural Christianity in in the suburbs of America. Um, and I began to watch people leave the church as 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 we as we came up and kind of got out of bubbles of youth group or of college and tried to understand what happened end times culture that really taught us about a posture of fear, uh, being being ready for anything. I mean, I grew up being told that the world would end before I would be able to start a family if I chose to or a career if I chose to. And so I, I and that, that is certainly a, a common scenario with many, many people in my generation, but really tracing how some of that kind of fear-based defensive posture of some boomers has also kind of led up to what we see what we see now with Christian nationalism and and what's going on with the Trump presidency, fear of you know vaccines and 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 everything else that's going on now. So I talk a little bit about end times culture, talk about culture wars, how we kind of came up light on spiritual formation and heavy on single issue voting and on being told what to buy or what not to buy, uh, what's okay or what's not okay to listen to or engage with. So thinking a little bit about culture wars and then finally thinking about consumerism and how the churches mixing with the market has um, only produced a series of churches that are thinking about scaling and using smoke machines and thinking about growth strategies and marketing plans. And the way that just feels really gross to a lot of us and, and cause a lot of us to kind of think, why, why are we here and, and what's going on? So those are some of the kind of buckets I'm kind of looking at. Trump is obviously like a, a, the great reveal. Was that even your phrase? Do you talk about the great reveal? No, but I like that a lot. <laughs> it's an REM phrase as well, isn't it? But yeah, uh, right. uh, I mean, were you were you on this path before that? I mean, where was your? You talked about university in the late nineties. Yep, that's right. I mean, when we landed in Seattle, it was to start an intentional community co-housing okay. thing with friends, which was a very like Shane Claiborne new monasticism. Yeah, right. Missional church thing. We were definitely in that wave. Yeah. Um, what we didn't realize, and John Mark Comer and Mark Sayers talk about this cultural assimilation phenomenon in their really wonderful This Cultural Moment podcast, this idea that we came to Seattle thinking we were going to plant a church or plant some kind of really cool retreat center really quickly, the city assimilated us. We didn't have any sea lakes. We didn't really know what we were getting into. So part of that was certainly not about Seattle and Mars Hill, but about that sort of time that we lived in and lived through. But after that season, uh, I went through about 10 years of, of wandering and wondering what, what are we doing and what does my faith even mean? My husband, after a community imploded, we lasted a couple of years until folks, there's different ways to tell that story. Folks started having kids and there wasn't really room. And we couldn't afford a house or an apartment building to continue co-housing. 
but also really a lot of folks started to identify as spiritual but not religious or faith looked different. And I always joke that I think spiritual but not religious is kind of like deconstruction. I feel like that, that word is kind of like that phrase is like deconstruction these days. So it was just a different era. But my husband went to seminary and kind of had a, a new kind of main idea. But I, I really spent 10 years flailing and like my light was like totally under a bowl. Like I had Sunday at church and then I would walk a mile downtown wearing like, you know, vintage cardigans to my art book publisher job and not talk about it. And so I had to kind of figure out what was going on. I stopped writing about faith. I stopped writing. I wrote professionally up to six articles a day during those years, but I did not write creatively or about these ideas. Um, I began to be really convicted around 2016, like a lot of folks, that that um, maybe there was something to say and began to identify a fear in myself of what would happen if I talked about my faith here. But really what changed is it became clear to me that that was very self-aggrandizing and really, really about, about me. So I, <laughs> so I took a little bit of time and, and, and said, I think it's time to start talking about my faith and what it's like to experience that as an urban Christian right now in the Trump era and began to talk a little bit about it. And some folks, some folks resonated. So this term orphaned believer is from an Over the Rhine song. Um, do you know that band? They're from Cincinnati. Oh, I know Over the Rhine. Linford okay. Detweiler went to my little high school in, in, in Alberta. He went to that Bible no. oh, yeah. Okay, can we just pause for a second? That's so cool. <laughs> I want to get Linford and Karen on this podcast one day, actually. That is I so would, wonderful. Yeah, I would love, do you know them then? I mean, we've been to, no, we've been to concerts since 1997. I mean, we've, we see them when they come through, but we don't, I don't know them. No, I, I don't know. I've met them, but they would never in a million years remember me, but I've, I've been following. Yeah. I love those guys. <laughs> well, there's a, there's a song on the album, The Long Surrender, that's called All My Favorite People. And the yeah. lyrics are, all my favorite people are broken. Believe me, my heart would know orphaned believers, skeptical dreamers. You're welcome. You don't have to go. Something like that. And so yeah, the term believers in those years really stuck with me. And I began to kind of understand that that was the best kind of literary articulation of, of what I was experiencing, both a spiritual orphaning where I looked around the church and, and saw a lot of brokenness, but also a kind of orphaning from what I was taught from my parents about the kind of Christianity I was, uh, I inherited, it didn't feel um, like it was thriving or growing. And so that's kind of a, the term that I kind of landed on. I mean, I don't know about your story. I, I know that there are people who, whose parents have rejected them because they no longer, I mean, they've chosen Trump over their own children. I've, I know of a number of people where that's true. So there's another orphan, orphaning happening, right? <sighs> that's right. Yeah, absolutely. It's pretty heartbreaking. You know, I was reading, I was reading a New York Times op-ed by David Brooks. I think it came out last year where he talks about this idea of uh, how Christian nationalism is not particularly Christian. And if you look at nationalism in the U.S. and in Europe, um, that there's these movements that are motivated by anti-immigrant kind of fears or like a nativism, but not really, and sort of uses religious, religious symbols and symbolism, but isn't really about Christianity. And so I think that that is completely true and fascinating that Christian nationalism, of course, and you would know this and understand these dynamics much better than I would, but maybe is not inherently Christian. So I think about that idea versus the real experience of broken relationships, um, severed ties with family members. Um, there's no one I know that hasn't had some kind of personal kind of wound with someone that they love or a former pastor or youth pastor or parent or sibling coming out of the Trump era. Like if you're a Christian that did not vote for Trump, if you're one of the two in tens in America, an evangelical that didn't vote for Trump, there's no way that you haven't had tension. So it's just a really interesting dynamic kind of imagining both sort of sides of that kind of thought process. This isn't really Christian, but we're breaking apart the church because of it. A shorthand would be if, uh, if, if all we knew about Jesus, his words, and his life disappeared from the record tomorrow, Trumpy Christians wouldn't have to change a single one of their positions on anything. Ooh, yeah. Right? Yeah. Like, mm. it's not, it might be, and I often point out, it might be Christian, but it's not following the way of Jesus. <laughs> like, the word That's Christian right. is, is become something else, which just means a cultural allegiance to a yeah of, of uh practices really 
And that's something I'm actually, I would, I would love to ask you about. I mean, the way where I've landed with the word Christian is nationalism has co-opted that word or is trying to, and it's important for Christians to, to reclaim or to sort of protect that the word Christian. Like we can't agree on much else. Um, Jesus followers, some folks say, you know, some folks, I mean, certainly most folks that were evangelical or identify with evangelicalism are not using that term freely, because if you do, you have to explain. Yeah. But I'm not, I'm not this kind. And that's very tiring and very, tiring. very complicated. Yeah. Um, so, so I keep coming back to let's reclaim or, or, or think about the word Christian as being kind of our common language and push back against nationalism that's sort of appropriating that word. But it's something I'm thinking through. And I'm wondering if you have had similar thought processes or kind of what language you might use. Well, it's, I mean, it is, it is a real mess because you can be Christian. People can be Christian, legitimately Christian and, and be on exactly opposite ends of almost any issue you care to name, right? So the word Christian doesn't actually indicate uh, anything useful anymore. Hmm. Um, and in some parts of the world, like your part of the world, the name, the word Christian almost, almost always denotes something really bad. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I mean, evangelicalism so, would be synonymous with white, with, with whiteness. And yeah, and have you seen the recent, so some recent uh, work being done that, that, that there's people who aren't even religious who are now identifying as evangelical because <laughs> it's pro-Trump. Yeah. So oh, because evangelicalism is so associated with Trumpism, there are people who are not religious and not Christian, but they call themselves evangelical now. There's evidence that this is starting to happen, yeah, for example, in America. So I just, I have noticed, I just read this, this thing just, just today, actually, that there are people now identifying as evangelical because of the Trump association. Now that's evangelical. I, the word Christian, I don't, I don't know, Sarah. I, I wonder whether that's a hill. I don't think it's a hill I want to die on anymore. Um, mm -hmm. I can see that you you are staking your claim on that. And I wanted to talk with you a little bit about that, like why you think that's worth it. I, I just am not sure. To me, it's like the word gay or something. It's like you'll always find somebody, oh, oh you know, gay means happy. I'm like, well, gay used to mean happy, but it doesn't mean that anymore. And you're, yeah, that's right. You're, you're going to spend the rest of your life trying to redefine a word when culture has already decided what that word means. Like, have we reached that with the word Christian? This is so interesting. I've been thinking a lot about this lately. My thinking is started around the word evangelical. I mean, I would consider myself, I mean, I believe in the Trinity, the resurrection, the virgin birth. Um, so right. I accept what has been defined in the early church councils. So I would call myself a Christian because of that, those identifiers. And I, so thinking about evangelical, like thinking about an elimination diet, I'm not a Catholic, I'm not Eastern Orthodox Coptic Christian. So I'm a Protestant, um, but believing that Jesus performed miracles, I'm not from like a liberal Christian tradition that might question those things. So if I'm kind of doing a flow chart, I kind of see where I'm where I'm landing. Um, but you know, as Kristen Jume talked about in a recent, I think it was last fall, she was on NPR Politics podcast and said, you know, we're at the point where evangelicals have little interest in the actual theology of Christianity, but on cultural identifiers, you know, and so. I think a lot about that word evangelical all the time. And there's just an IVP book by a pastor, I think from Hawaii named Dan Stringer that says, if we, he essentially argues when we deny the word evangelical, we're sort of skirting a responsibility to sort of sit with what that means and, and do the work of kind of reimagining or reforming that tradition. Except that I think it was bad from the start. I mean, I don't, right? Like, I, I think you look at, like the fruits or you look at the generation the it's taken generations to come to this but it, it wasn't that great to begin with i mean it was <laughs> it was nationalistic yeah. it was yeah. it took positions on scripture and on the trinity or and on the incarnation or on whatever it took positions that themselves were suspect or not great so often when you're trying to reclaim the word evangelical you're like yeah but what are you actually trying to reclaim i mean it's not really, yeah. it wasn't that good yeah. to, to begin yeah, with. Yeah, that's right. It's been good for me to kind of think it through. I almost think about it like a flow chart or like, did I say elimination diet? Like I just kind of think about what I'm not to think about what I may be. But then 
Yeah, I have little interest in in spending time reviving that term. I I, I do I do, but here's the the piece is thinking about how there's what like 750 million global evangelicals. Like I do think then I get to the point where I imagine my kind of Western or American lens around around Christ, the word Christian or the word evangelical, and I wonder I wonder about that piece, and I I, I do take comfort in the global church and our historic faith. So I think about our tradition and also context besides myself, which I don't know as much about as I'd like to, and kind of wonder how those dynamics impact the language that I use as well. Um, yeah. So yeah. I'm just, I'm thinking it through, you know, I'm just, it's really, really on my mind. It feels quite important. And I'm not even sure, I don't know where I'll land. I feel like I heard somebody say once, you know, you can be a Christian and, and do and say all sorts of things, but you can't, claim to be a follower of the way of Jesus and do and say all sorts of things and I feel mm -hmm. like that is still that's becoming a such a key dividing line I think yeah it's like so yeah, no I'm not arguing that you're not a Christian and, they, and everybody's like oh you can't judge me if I call myself a Christian I'm saying I'm not judging you if you're a Christian Donald Trump is a Christian I'm not arguing that I'm just saying he's not following the way of Jesus Right. Yeah, that's right. I think that saying the way of Jesus is so compelling. I, I do feel like, though, I might have to take time explaining what that means. Maybe like I would explaining what kind of Christian I am. It feels like everything demands explanation. And maybe I should just acknowledge that and lean into it and let that be the work that it needs to be. But that's really interesting. Yeah. I mean, mm. sometimes I say, oh, you know, the Sermon on the Mount. Well, I'm the, the kind of Christian that's <laughs> trying to follow it, as opposed to the kind of Christian that's trying to excuse myself from it. Oh, that's good. Yeah, that's but right. You're right. We're always going to be explaining everything. Yeah. Have you found, like, have you been road testing the orphan believers in, in groups yet? Have you been finding what, when you start to talk about this, what, what is the response you get? Yeah, I mean, the common denominator, I mean, the, the response has been, I haven't had language to explain how I'm feeling. I feel like the only one, um, which has been really interesting and lovely. Um, I think that certain, certain language maybe, I mean, I think there's something poetic about it and something that's kind of floaty. Do you lean more towards orphaned or towards believer? There's a little bit of room to kind of move around that term. Um, which I think is is really great, but the common denominator has been folks that have joined together in opposition of the Trump presidency, uh, and it's you know long-lasting implications for the American church, um, and also people that are pursuing Jesus even in an era when identifying as whatever word you'd like to use, I'll just say Christian, is seen as anti-intellectual or archaic or or sort of synonymous with nationalism and God and country national. So that's that's kind of where it seems to be the most sort of resonant. There are folks of different generations that seem to appreciate the word, but certainly folks that are a little bit, um, a little bit younger. And um, typically people that um, have some kind of evangelical background or, or affinity or, or some kind of association tend to, to be drawn to the, to the phrase, which has been very cool to kind of see and gather. What happens to the, the deconstruct? It's, I've been watching, the american scene because what i've noticed is a lot of deconstructionism is now like the new fad but they're basically just still evangelicals they're still marketing themselves they're still offering products they're still right it's just it's the same shit different different name yeah yeah the marketization of deconstruction is very interesting the way that that word was used a couple of years ago for example like when josh harris and that you know instagram post used that word it's felt like a word of, of deficit or of, of, of leaving, then now the word has become, I feel like it's changed and it's become a word of folks that are grappling in like an honest and really beautiful way with what it means to identify as a person of faith right now. So it's been interesting. And this is the other, I, my mind kind of zooms up to kind of like broader connections. And so I always have to be careful because when I think about deconstruction, I don't think necessarily like this is the individual experience. I just think on a cultural level, oh, look how that word meant this thing. And now it kind of means something else and how you can't deconstruct forever, but how long does reconstruction become the word we use? What word do we use next? So I always say this with the caveat that I think a person that deeply connects with language around deconstruction and reconstruction, um, maybe having quite an intense and personal journey. And so I want to be mindful of acknowledging that. But in terms of the word itself, yeah, I think that um, people have been 
building brands online or kind of like mini industries, almost like a spoke of the wellness industry around deconstruction and and seeing what happens, um, how long that that can last is, is fascinating. And it kind of seems like we've we've kind of topped out and now we're sort of in the reconstruction spoke <laughs> of that kind of commercial wheel. And I'm, I'm quite curious to know what happens next, but that feels like a very American perspective. Like, do you across the pond also kind of ex- sense the same dynamic with those words? Well, again, whenever I encounter it in the UK, it's people who are been drinking from the American well. So the the influence of, of American evangelical culture is so strong that British evangelicals are they tend to be influenced really strongly by American stuff. So when I do meet people who are who might use that word reconstruction or deconstruction, what they're deconstructing from is all the stuff that they got out of the American world. Right? So it's still an American phenomenon. It just happens to be happening here i'm sure there are british people i mean i'm not saying there's not i'm just saying as far as i can tell it still has a very it still uses american like it's people deconstructing from american ideas by grabbing onto even more american ideas <laughs> and it's the market it's the it's got its grips you know on people's souls really that's right yeah, yeah that's the, right this culture mm-hmm. which is something deeper and i think i'm really interested in your idea of the consumerism seeing people primarily as individual consumers seems to have remained. That is the, that is the identity that has remained and they're either evangelical or they're deconstructing, but they're still individual consumers. And that has a much stronger hold on people's psyche than, than anything else. Yeah. And that really taps into, you know, there's a, a social scientist, I think her name is Elizabeth Creed Hackett who spoke on Hidden Brain a couple of years ago, an NPR podcast that talked about the idea of the aspirational class and how the way that wealth were, um, were being typically white middle-class, upper middle-class manifests is not like buying luxury cars and like silver spoons, but these days may manifest more in shopping at Whole Foods of, um, of doing yoga or of like choosing to, choosing to breastfeed your baby because that's the best. I mean, not that just the culture around that. That are they're sort of the new markers. And so watching how the church kind of feeds into this sort of idea of aspirational class is really about, to me, like customization or being able to sort of choose kind of your flavor of what kind of church you go to, how you interact. So thinking about how aspirational class may impact church and then thinking about kind of what's happening in LA with you know, year, a couple of years ago, like Kanye West Sunday service in LA, where there were like $300 socks that said Jesus saved or sweatshirts or whatever. Thinking about that is, is totally fascinating. So there's so many interesting, interesting things. And it's not just Christianity. I mean, I can go to Madewell, which is like an American kind of millennial jean store and buy tarot cards. I mean, you know, I can, so it's certainly broader than just, just Christianity. Um, but those influences are fascinating to me. I think I've, I might've mentioned this on the podcast before, so I'm sorry to listeners if, if I repeat my story, but I was walking down the street. This was in Montreal, actually, this was in Canada, but I was walking down a street and I could see that I was approaching a religious bookstore and I could see like in the window, all the tat, you know, all the kind of just gimmicks and cheap products yeah. with religious stuff. And I was like, all ready to judge Christians, but, oh, Christianity, what a waste of time. And I showed up and it was a, it was a, Muslim it was an Islamic store wow okay and it was an Islamic bookshop filled with cheap products and tacky stuff and I thought oh there's something about North America there's this culture that is it's it is what is adapting all these religions they're adapting to North American consumerism right yeah that's right and the evangelical church really grew with the suburbs yes. you know after World War II and they so drove it yeah. So, you know, there's there's churches and strip malls. They're not very far away. You can throw a stone from one to the other. So, of course, that's going to mix up and 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 fold into each other. Yeah. And and churches that look like Walmarts and that kind of thing as well. That's right. With Chick-fil-A's inside. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and those things are really close because you can't challenge that because then that's challenging the freedom of the market and that kind of thing. And that's when the again, nationalism comes up again, because really it's the American way. Right. I mean, that's, that's right. You can't challenge that because that's challenging 
the free market, which is the American dream. Yeah. When I think about these dynamics, I just, I try to remind myself that, you know, America is 200 years old. The church right. has a 2000 year history. Um, I, I don't know that I yeah. find comfort for long, but I try to put, I try to put my own life and my own location in a, a lot larger context, kind of thinking about the communion line of the folks that have come before us. And that, I don't know if that brings comfort, but that does something good. It does myself. mean that that we shouldn't be so quick to just say, oh, the word Christian means American evangelical yeah, right. now. It, that's not yeah. true. We, we, you're right. Oh. We need to not just give up because <laughs> it does. Yeah. It is a lot bigger than that. That is true. What other kind of people have you been, have you been influenced by or who are, who are informing your, your thinking in this? You mentioned some NPR and some, oh, some sure. Christian Cobes yeah. Dume. Who else have you been imbibing? Well, you know, this is, this is, I mean, I've been reading a fair amount about uh, whiteness and suburbia. Nell Painter's The History of White People was, was quite interesting. Just trying to, to read pretty widely. Like in terms of folks, um, now I'm following Robert P. Jones, who wrote, who's written a lot about race and whiteness and the church. Interestingly, for the book, I decided that, I mean, my, I, I grew up hearing about the late great planet Earth and Hal Lindsey every week of my entire childhood through my teenage years. And the truth is I had never read the book, which just felt ridiculous to be talking about this book, this book. And so I, so I would not call this an influence in any way, but in terms of what's been enlightening and eye-opening, I did read The Late Great Planet Earth, which was, was uh, sold more copies than The Joy of Sex in the 70s and was on the bestseller list for a long time, the New York Times bestseller. So I've been, been trying to kind of go back and read a little bit of, context about what was going on. I mean, there's a, a book about um, about hippies and Jesus people that I that I have, I've done a little bit of research into that. I've researched the new age movement a little bit, thinking about sort of pseudo-spirituality from the 50s, 60s, 70s up. Um, so I've been doing a little bit of research on revivals and on the Toronto blessing, thinking about those pieces. So I really have been dipping my, my toe into a lot of different buckets of, of research and reading, um, which has been fascinating. <laughs> Do you have some sense? I mean, in of the future, what's your gut instinct? What are there some things coming down the, the pike? Yeah, I, mean, yeah, I, I guess I I'd, I'd be interested in two things. First, like, what do you think is coming down the pike, and what can we start doing now to get ready for it? Yeah, that's right. I think that um, it's I mean, it's a time of change. Real change is happening now. We can just like you can't deconstruct forever. I don't. I don't know that the church can break apart forever in America in the in the West. I think that there'll be schisms and denominations continued breaking down because of politics and theology. Um, but I think that some some Christians and some churches and denominations will be able to be clear on seeing Trump for who he is, of renouncing racism in the church celebrity and the sort of celeb celebrity celebrity pastor culture commercialization in the church so i do believe that it's lamentable that people are leaving the church um the whole reason i'm writing about orphan believers and doing the work that i'm doing is because i i believe that it is possible to pursue jesus in spite of everything that's happening um so that brings me hope but i do think that those voices those of us that have this sort of burning desire for reform, um, if we can bear it, if we can find each other, if we can band together and stay, then we can cause change. Um, because if this is true, if any of this is true, um, if this whole Christian story is not a myth, it means that there will always be the church because that's what Christ left us with, his church. And so we will be sort of renewed in some small way. So I guess I'm predicting a lot more sadness and brokenness, but but something beautiful and new that will be sustained. And that may be optimism, that may be, that may be, be me being a Pollyanna, but I'm really, I'm very convicted. I, I do feel strongly that something new will be reborn, but I mean, I guess we've got to get through the next election <laughs> and yeah. see, see what happens. I mean, it does feel like things are, are going to continue to be pretty abysmal for a while, um, but I think we can live with that reality, with their eyes open, and bear hope that there are uh, there there are and will be people that are choosing to follow the way of Jesus um, in the presence of everything else, in the presence of all of these afflictions and trials and all the brokenness. I mean, if we can't stay in the deconstruction zone for too long, I, you also can't stay orphaned for forever either, right? 
Yeah, that's right. What comes after the orphaned believers? Yeah, well, you know, that's funny. It's like some nonprofits say, our whole goal is to put ourselves out of business. And so our strategic plan in 10 years is that our, our mission will be fulfilled and we'll close our doors. I mean, how awesome would it be? Like how, like, like, thank you, God, if there were no orphaned believers, that would be a beautiful and wonderful thing. I think we have a little while, but um, really what I'm interested in has just a deeper formation, um, thinking deeper about spiritual practices and principles um, in the church and how to raise up my kids and future folks with a real fortified faith that's based in in prayer and and based in um, community and not in the market. <laughs> and I'm also really interested in what happens in the church in terms of creativity and craft and counterculture and the arts and aesthetics. I think many people think that that's, that that's sort of not for them, but really kind of wanting to reintroduce beauty and an aesthetic into, into church, into the faith and what that can look like. So those are some ideas I'm kind of thinking thinking ahead about. Have you ever heard of Brian, uh, not, well, Brian Zand. Have you heard of Brian Zand? Have you, yes. Yeah. I was just so, reading something this morning by him. Yeah. I mean, his beauty will save the world is one thing I thought of. Oh, I haven't read that yet. I was just yeah. reading Water, Water to Wine. Yes. But one of his uh, very good friends is a guy named Brad Jerzak. I don't know if you've ever come across Brad's book. He's a writer. He's, he, he, he grew up evangelical, was a vineyard charismatic pastor, and now he's an Orthodox theologian. But he was talking to me about uh, when I was saying, I just feel completely, I didn't use the word orphaned, but now I, you know, I should have listened to over the Rhine. I would have used this word, <laughs> but I was like, I just feel so at odds with, you know, Jesus is so good. That hasn't changed. The, the Sermon on the Mount is still the best thing I've ever read. It's just that everybody I, around me who's calls themselves a Christian is a complete idiot. Yeah what do I do? I'm not a Christian anymore, I guess. And he said, well, you could say that, or you could realize that every generation, uh, there's always somebody who likes Jesus more than they like Christianity. Hmm. And that, that there's always those voices. And that in fact, you might be a lot closer to the heart of Christianity than you think, because that happens all the time. That's right. I wondered whether these orphaned believers I mean, it's interesting we use that word because it could be that every generation produces orphan believers who are actually a lot closer to the heart of uh, of somebody who was also against corrupt systems. Yeah, that's right. The the reformers, like those of us that are, have hearts burning for change. I mean, this podcast exists. We're having this conversation because like there are there are people that think deeply about these things and we like bear the weight of the brokenness because we bear hope in in what what may be to come and that's a beautiful thing which makes you feel like you're out in the wilderness but then if you look around you think oh maybe i'm not so far away from the center of it as i thought i was right yeah i'm i'm counting on it where do you see what what are some of the communities or some of the places that you're seeing hope and life in right now I was thinking about that. You know, I talk, I think about mega churches or celebrity pastors or the things that we, I think about who's loud on Twitter, um, who gets the headlines, but thinking about like a couple of, a couple of specific congregations, like doing like beautiful work, direct service, having vaccine clinics, you know, a, a mobile food port, a, a mobile food truck to like serve folks that are hungry and meet homeless people. I mean, I think about those are people, we don't hear their voices. We're not thinking about that kind of work. Just the real, just direct service that's happening every day from various churches around America is, is, is such a quiet, almost like a quiet revolution. I mean, that sounds like a hokey kind of 90s book title, but I really, I really feel encouraged by it. Um, so I think about the kind of invisible service that's happening. That's just so grounding and outside of kind of the tweet, tweet, Twitter world, Twitter war world. And that yes. gives me a little echo. Yeah. It's true. We just have to remind ourselves just because they're not. Well, I've <laughs> I've heard this. I've used this quote before. Religion is like a, a swimming pool. All the noise comes from the shallow end. <laughs> that's so good. Yeah. Oh, that's good. Yeah. You Almost uh, always the person making the most noise is probably the least worth listening to. Right. That's right. And then I also am thinking about various uh, 
various musicians and artists doing really like beautiful work, um, modern iconographers, um, folk singers. And I do think about, again, going back to aesthetics, I do think there's sort of an interesting community. Of, oh, I'll give them, a, give them a free plug. Who, what musicians or folk singers would you? Oh, sure. So I'm thinking about Jess Ray. I'm thinking about Ezekiel Songs, this guy named Kevin, who's wonderful. And I'm thinking about uh, Andy Squires okay. in North Carolina. Oh, good. Well, I'm going to look those up. That yeah. sounds fun. I think you and I have very similar musical tastes. So I, I think if you like it, then I must probably like it as well. Totally. Are we, so are we going to talk about the war on drugs just for Come a minute? Come on. War on drugs. I, it, my, only, my only complaint with you, Sarah, is that your favorite song is not <laughs> Ocean Between the Waves. It's like my second favorite. Um, I wrote I wrote Orphaned Believers to the Lost on the Dream album in the in the Dream album, and I I I really mean it. Like the only thing I could yeah. do is listen to nothing or the Lost in the Dream album from 2014, and I've listened yeah. to it hundreds of times over the past year. I don't even know if that's okay to say. That sounds like obsessive. Is there like some word for a music lover that can't listen to anything to else? Anything else? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I. Like that is the that is the album for me as well like, I, I like really their stuff but that's the one he hasn't got better than that as far as I it's can it's so great but um the song under the pressure is my yeah. fave but I love ocean between the waves and they're coming to Seattle next month so I'll take my son my son's 12 and he'll go to see them play and I'm I'm so so excited I saw them live tw twice within like a few months time they for some reason they came to London within a few months of each other and I just I loved it I was fr front row right there so awesome. Well, yeah. thank you, War on Drugs, for keeping us going. <laughs> well, I fought the War on Drugs and the drugs won, I guess. But anyway, there we are. <laughs> uh, so, Sarah, where can people go if they want to find out more about your work or your writing or, or your book? When does Orphan Believers come out? Yeah, Orphan Believers comes out uh, from Baker in spring of 23. So we're about a year out. It's okay. a long process. Yeah. Uh, but I, I typically am most active on Instagram. It's just Sarah.Phillips. And then I send a monthly substack called Bitter Scroll that folks can find online as well. Oh, wow. Well, I'm so glad we met, Sarah. I, I, I knew I'd be friends with you. I just was very glad that we could Thanks. prove it. <laughs> this has been so fun. Uh, I really am so grateful to be on. Thank you. Oh, well, let's let's stay in touch. There's, there's more stuff we that. can do together, I'm sure. But That's until then, farewell. Okay, great. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. Thanks to David Backhouse for the theme tune and to Chris Marchand for editing and all the other music. This show only exists because of support from listeners like you. If you have found something we made to be good or useful, please consider becoming a patron at the Tent Talks Patreon page or leave a good review on whichever podcast platform you use to listen. This really helps. For more information, visit www.tenttheology.com.